International Women's Day and at Women's Health and Wellbeing Services we wanted to focus on leadership. So I was trying to think about what amazing leaders I could invite to come and speak with me on today's podcast to share their journey. What I had already done though is reach out to, with some of my colleagues, reach out to some amazing women who are in our community and invite them to speak at our International Women's Day event. So we had a lineup of four amazing speakers who were coming along today to talk about, share their story, share some of the obstacles that they've overcome and then how they're leaders in their own right. So then trying to find somebody else who I could reach out to who was going to have availability to find time to chat with me was proving tricky. And when I thought about it, I thought, we have these amazing women who are coming along they're already sharing their story. So although it won't be the conversation that is great to have, um, instead I might actually just sign off and I might just um, let them tell their story in the way that they did today. So what we've done is we're going to take the audio recording of today's event, which was the Inspire Conference held in City of Canning. So that Inspire Conference was sponsored by City of Canning today and organised by the staff and team at Women's Health and Wellbeing. We've got two amazing speakers who we'll have for today's episode and then the next episode will be the other two speakers. And um, so that's how I thought we would celebrate today's International Women's Day. Thank you very much and I hope you enjoy listening to them as much as I did. I'm the CEO of Women's Health and Wellbeing Services. It is my great pleasure to be here to welcome you here today. I'd like to thank you all for joining us for Women's Health and Wellbeing Services 2021 International Women's Day Event Inspire Conference, proudly sponsored by the City of Canning. I'd like to invite City of Canning Mayor Patrick Hall to officially open the event. Morning, everyone. Morning. Morning. I thought I'd wear something that might help me blend in a little. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, just wanted to start by um, uh, thanking you for having me along today to open this event. It's a real privilege to be here on International Women's Day. Um, and uh, also just to acknowledge uh, Councillor Amanda Spencer-Theo, who was at the back, uh, met her, and gets away, there she is. It's wonderful for these events to be supported by local government, I feel. I think it's our role. I think we just have to be doing those sorts of things. And Amanda made the point a moment ago to me, and this is how thoughtless men are, uh, I guess all, most of the men uh, go off to work in the morning, have their breakfast, merrily sleep in a little bit, and just drive off to work. People like Amanda, who had four children, had to get them all organised, dropped off to school before they got to come here. There's just uh, so many differences in the way we approach our lives. Then I start by firstly just acknowledging the Wajuk people, the traditional owners of this land upon which we meet, and of course uh, we, I pay our respects to elders both past and present. And I, always, I don't often do it, but um, just to personalise it a bit, this land here, this area where we're on here, uh, borders uh, the suburb of Wilson, which many years ago was actually called uh, Bilu. Bilu was the name of one of the uh, mobs, one of the tribes that lived in this area. Unfortunately, that uh, name was changed to, um, to Wilson many, many years ago in the 1960s. But the city of Canning has a number of wards named after the mobs that lived around here. One is uh, Bilu. 
which is this area, and also Belia, which is uh, where Willerton is. So uh, once upon a time, many years ago, before uh, white settlement, uh, we had uh, tribes of indigenous people living, hunting, planning and recreating right here where we meet today. And that's the importance of uh, saying those words and paying our respects. I wanted to welcome you all to the City of Canning. I know many in the room are probably not residents. Some of you are very fortunate to be residents here in the City of Canning. Uh, but also to acknowledge um, Professor Lynn Beasley, who I understand will be speaking, Dr Alison Evans, uh, Rebecca Tolstoy and uh, Jess Carlson, who are all here among us today. Uh, and the staff from Women's Health and Wellbeing Services but I also wanted to just take a moment to mention the staff that have assisted in City Canning staff I'm talking about. Uh, Carly's here, hello Carly, uh, for helping put on the event today because uh, these things don't happen by magic. There's an awful lot of moving parts behind events of this nature uh, and an awful lot of people have put in a great deal of time and effort to make sure that your day-to-day -day is incredibly meaningful. Um, staff has, have, as they always do, given me a number of um, very uh, clinical and corporate uh, dot points to read through. Um, I generally choose to disregard those and go rogue. And I intend to do that today. Um, I just wanted to say uh, that we've got a long way to go. And I say we because uh, this is a partnership. Uh, because changes that will come must be led by women, but they certainly have to be championed and supported by men. Uh, you can't do it alone, and we uh, have to step up. Uh, if men continue to sit silently by as witnesses to inequity, bias and equality, then they really are, we are complicit in the unnecessary continuation of practices and of a culture which is unequivocally unfair. Men must stand up and step forward and also speak up, and I'm doing that today, and I have done. Following on the theme of International Women's Day 2021, which kind of wraps up a whole range of issues, but one of them being a challenge, the challenge is to confront uh, bigotry, uh, challenge misogyny, and in doing so, that will require a change to people's hearts and to their minds, and that change must uh, start today. And I know it's already happening, but I can't underscore the importance of men actually doing their bit. We're not doing the heavy lifting, and we just have to do it. So um, it's wonderful to be here today. Uh, it's wonderful to see so many of you here in the room. I hope you get a great deal of meaningful uh, enjoyment from today's uh, speakers uh, and at this event. But I will close by just saying that um, how pleased I am in the city of Canning. This is completely off topic uh, to see the rise and rise of women's participation in sport. And I think in some ways that's a link to, to, to health uh, in general. I actually travelled with my 30-year-old son down to Fremantle a uh, weekend before last just to watch the women's AFL game down there at Freo Oval. And I've got to tell you, I was really surprised to see, pleasantly surprised to see just how many men had done exactly the same thing, not just to watch sport, but to support women in sport. And I actually ran into two of my cousins down there, old Fremantle blokes, uh, in their 60s who had just done exactly the same thing. I had a conversation recently with the, um, the captain of the Willington Senior Women's Football side, and it shows that men are really trying hard to understand. But one thing that men, uh, one of our failings is, first of all, we don't listen very well. And that might be a surprise to many of you in the room. <laughs> but the other thing is we don't always have a lot of empathy. And I'm not certain why that is, but we need to start finding that. She spoke to me about uh, what they needed down there uh, in the change rooms, because those change rooms are back from a time uh, where sport was both mostly dominated by men. And as you'd expect, expect uh, the change rooms are full of men's urinals and a whole bunch of other uh, you know, functionality that's not required by women. She said it's the simple things. 
She said we need, need more mirrors on the wall. And I, I just I didn't quite understand what she meant. She said we've got 22 women here that all want to uh, put their hair up in a pony or a bun before we start, and afterwards we want to brush our hair out. And 22 people standing around one mirror, it just doesn't work. And it just dawned on me how far we have as community leaders and as men to understand the intrinsic needs of women right across the sector, right across the board, uh, in work, in leadership, in sport, in every facet of our life. So I'm not sure uh, why we are unable to join the dots, but men start having, need to start having to do so. So once again, on behalf of my colleagues at the City of Canning and the City of Canning, I welcome you to our wonderful city. Uh, thanks so much for participating today, and I hope you have a, a wonderful uh, day. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Before we begin today, I too would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation, and pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. At Women's Health and Wellbeing Services, we also start all of our events by acknowledging the women who have walked before us. We thank the women who have paved the way and started the journey that we continue to travel today. This is even more relevant today, as today we mark 30 years to the day since a group of professional women came together and saw the need for a community health service in the southeast metro area. It took three years, but today we mark 30 years from the conception that led to Women's Health and Wellbeing Services. Tara will speak in a moment about International Women's Day, so I won't go into that too much, except to say that with the theme Choose to Challenge, we've chosen rather than highlighting how much challenge we still have ahead of us, instead we want to celebrate how far we have come. We want to hear from some amazing women, who I'm so super excited about, I'm having a bit of a banger moment, but I'll move on to that later. <laughs> um, and they're so generously sharing their story today, and I will admit I did squeal and do a cartwheel, but that's okay. I'm not doing that again. Um, women's Health and Wellbeing is a small non-profit organisation located in Gosnells. We support women in the entire South East Metro area, but we don't turn people away. So we have women who travel to our service from Gingerley, and we have people who travel up from Albany, and quite a few of our clients do come from the city of Canning as well, but everywhere in between. If you can get to us, you can access our services. We don't turn people away. We offer mental health services supporting women and families in general counselling, perinatal mental health, which is pregnancy through to uh, youngest child turning four. We have family counselling, children's counselling. We also have health promotion and social groups, including the Brand New Brand Walking Group. We have our Wellness Warriors program, where we get to go out and try amazing new activities like axe throwing or aerials, and this week we're going out and doing water bikes. So it's super fun. Um, if you want more information about what we do or what we offer, then we have an information table at the back, which has a little bit of information, or in our breaks, if you look for somebody who's wearing a T-shirt, similar to mine. Um, we also have a website, so you can check that out as well. We're a non-profit organisation. We run on the tightest of shoestring budgets. You can imagine we rely on fundraising to allow us to continue, and in March we run a Loose Change for Big Change campaign where we ask people to donate their loose change with the idea being that small amounts don't make, uh, don't make a big impact, but when you put small amounts together, it makes a huge impact. And that's what International Women's Day is all about as well. When we make small steps and we continue to make small steps, overall we make giant change. So... That's enough of my commercial break about what Women's Health and Wellbeing Services is all about. And so without further ado, can I invite Tara to please come forward and share some information about International Women's Day. Thank you, Emma. Now, I'm sure a lot of you already know what International Women's Day is, so I won't go over the details 
in a really elaborate, drawn-out way. But just to recap, International Women's Day started in 1911. There were some celebrations around the world prior to 1911, but that was the day that it was decided the 8th of March will be the day we go forward and celebrate women, we fundraise for women, and we celebrate how far we've come, but also how far we have to go. Now today, I want to thank the women that have come before me and the women that have fought for what we now consider basic rights, the right to vote, the right to own property, the right to have a right over where our children live and what was previously called custody of our children, which some of you may not know, but before the 1900s, if you're a woman who separated from your husband, you had no right to spend time with or have custody of your child. So we've come so far. And today I want to look forward to the future and I dream of a world where there's no uh, women who suffer from intimate partner violence, there's no deaths from intimate partner violence. I also dream of a world where it's not the woman in the office that's asked to go out and get more milk for tea, that everyone is asked the same to go out and get the milk. And I dream of a world where people aren't judged about what they're wearing, but what they're saying. And a world where if you want to wear Crocs to speak, you can do that, but you're still considered an intelligent person and an equal to everyone around you. A day that the women are in parliament and in boardrooms as much as men. And I just want to share a short anecdote to wrap up International Women's Day. So I was out a few weeks ago with some friends and believe it or not, so we went out to a nightclub and there were some girls there that are almost a decade younger than me. And I thought, I'll be sensible, I'm going to wear some nice sandals, I'll be really comfortable, they're going to be in heels, but I've learned from my mistakes. To my surprise though, I got to the nightclub and I was the one in the uncomfortable shoes because they were all wearing sneakers and I was in sandals and I realised just how far we've come. So I think that's a great example of where we're getting to and I encourage uh, you all to keep pushing the generations to come, the daughters, the granddaughters and everyone after that. So next we have Dr. Alison Evans. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, to give a bit of a background, Dr. Alison Evans is really passionate about women's health and tackling some of the health issues that comes with um, financial disadvantage, sexual abuse, domestic violence, and many other issues. Now she'll explain it much better when she comes up, up the stage. Um, all I've found out is just from what I can find on Google. So if you don't want that information up there, Make sure you change your privacy settings. <laughs> you. you make it sound way more interesting than I am. <laughs> um, I often say that um, I think the only thing you can find about me on Google is, um, is, is winning an Easter egg, coming in competition when I was showing up. I'd like to start um, to just um, a, acknowledge that we're meeting here today on the land of the Wadja um, Rumau Nation. And I'd like to pay my respect uh, to Aboriginal people past, present, and future and to respectfully acknowledge um, any Aboriginal um, people in the room today. Um, can you hear me if I'm not... Can you hear me OK, Nancy? Thank you. Can you hear me now? Yeah. All right. Um, OK. Uh, about a month ago, uh, the wonderful Emma Bass 
uh, asked if I would talk at a women's leadership event celebrating International Women's Day. My first thought was, uh, did everyone else she asked say no? Uh, <laughs> my second thought was, what do I know about leadership? Uh, when I expressed my confusion to Emma, she said, and sorry Emma, I forgot to tell you I was going to do this, and I quote, um, I think you are incredibly inspiring, you are so very knowledgeable, you are quiet and gentle, and don't need to lead with fear and ferocity. Just by themselves, that is overwhelmingly inspiring. Add to that your reduced vision, not finishing school, having a baby early, and all the other obstacles you have overcome, and my goodness, you are a poster girl for a woman in leadership. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's not why I said it. <laughs> so, so first up, I'm going to focus on some of the things uh, that Emma mentioned because I have to say, in quite a few emails, she mentioned the same thing. So I'm guessing that's what she wants to talk about. <laughs> um, okay. So I'm letting you know up front that I am a woman with a disability. I'm blind in my left eye and I just have a little bit of vision in my right, which is why I'm doing this, I can't see it down there. <laughs> and I had my first child at 15. Uh, I missed out on a lot of school and I left at 15 without even a, a year 10 high school certificate. When I was at school it was very hard to participate as I couldn't see the board um, even when I was sitting at the front and I couldn't copy from the child next because I couldn't see that either. Um, but I did have a passion for learning. I loved history, um, I loved politics and literature, even economics. I was very much self-taught. Interestingly, I think I learned the most about the world and the human condition through the, literature, through the fiction that I read. Uh, fiction helped me to understand the world around me and to find my own skin. At age 17, I enrolled in long-distance learning. I lived in the metropolitan area, but because I had a two-year-old and I couldn't drive, uh, they landed and allowed me to study that way. Um, I have to say that I just loved studying when year 11 and 12. Looking back though, I can see I put much, much more into it than was required. Uh, when I studied the unit on the Russian Revolution, I read the entire history of Russia up to that point. Um, I also read, it, read everything I could get my hands on that Lenin wrote. I have to confess. I actually felt a little bit in love with him. <laughs> I hate to say it, but I also really quite like the idea of socialism. <laughs> I surprised myself and I did really well in years 11 and 12. At the end of year 12, I was informed that I had to go and sit my exams in a high school gymnasium with hundreds of other kids. Um, well, the fear of not being able to see where I have to sit and not knowing what to do and, and then failing was quite overwhelming. I was completely and utterly beside myself at the thought. The relief swept over me the moment I made the decision to simply not graduate. My grandparents were over from the UK at the time. I quite casually mentioned to them that I wouldn't be doing the exams. I was quite taken aback when my usually very loving and understanding nan, who my wife had, herself left school at 14, had a baby at 17, and a very good life um, all up. Um, turned to me with the sternest expressions and stated, Oh, my dead body, you'll be sitting those exams, Missy. You tell me when and where they are, and your brain and I will drive you there and wait until you've finished. <laughs> now, these are the same grandparents who attended my appointment with me when I was 15 and pregnant. 
So I have to say, though, that I was a little bit um, anxious at the thought of coming to the school with me because my granddad would sit in the waiting room at my appointment doing a magic trick, saying, pick a card, pick a card, to all the pregnant women in the waiting room. <laughs> and when I had to go into a urine sample, he bellowed down the echoing hall in his Newcastle accent, Ali, Ali, when you go to the toilet, don't sit on the seat because Australian disease is jump 10 feet. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the fear of disappointing my nat outweighed the fear of sitting my exams. Well, as you can imagine, waiting for the results of my exams to arrive was excruciating. But I passed and I got into uni. Faced with finding my way around a, a, a huge um, campus thronging with people was actually quite overwhelming. I had quite a physiological reaction. Sometimes I would have to squat and pretend that I was looking for something in my bag because my legs literally turned to jelly. Looking back, I can see that I was also quite emotionally exhausted, um, not just because it was all so new um, and I didn't know a single soul, but because so much of my energy and effort went into trying to look normal, trying to look like I can see. Now, I'm not going to talk at length about my time at university. All I'll say is it was an incredible experience intellectually. I went on to do honours and my PhD. University gave me the knowledge, the language, the tools, the written and spoken communication to articulate myself to others and to myself about my position in the world, my ethics, and my understanding of what makes a good society. I grew up with inequality and inequity. I knew it instinctively. Instinctively, I always had a keen sense of social justice. University enabled me to define it and to claim my sense of purpose. This motivated me throughout my career, and I ended up leading an organisation that focuses on the key areas that I've always felt most passionate about, preventing violence against women and their children, promoting women's health, and advancing gender equity. Now, this is where I'd like to stop, and I want to circle back to my puzzlement uh, regarding Emma's invitation. I really didn't understand the, the connection between me and leadership. Uh, to be quite honest, I've never spent much time thinking about leadership. The invitation from Emma made me stop and think, what, what is leadership? What does it mean? And what does a leader look like, and how do they act? If I was going to be speaking at a leadership event, I needed to position myself in relation to the word. So, being the uh, rigorous scholar that I am, I googled the word leadership. <laughs> the first three examples that came up were... I did have some slides on it, but I'll just read them. A political leader, pursuing a passionate personal cause, an explorer, cutting a path through the jungle for the rest of this group to follow, an executive developing her company strategy to beat the competition. Well, I wasn't off to a good start because I didn't see myself as either of those things. I scrolled down a bit further. Sorry. Effective leadership is based upon ideas, both original and borrowed, that are effectively communicated to others in a way that engages them enough to act as a leader wants them to act. Now, sounds a little bit manipulative actually, doesn't it? <laughs> then I saw this. Oh, go back a bit. Great leaders have no rules. I hate rules. So I quite like this one. Then I thought Lady Emma is right. 
maybe I am a bit of a leader because I hate rules. I'm always bending and breaking them. Then I thought, mm, well, really I'm more of a fence jumper. I'll jump fences to escape things and get around things or just for a different way to go. I don't really bend and break things, so scroll again. Leadership is a process of social influence which maximises the efforts of others towards the achievement of a goal. I quite like that one. It's by someone called Kevin Cruz. I have no idea who he is, um, but the quote appeals to me, so I think we'll keep that one up there. Now I'd like to give you the context of the snippet of my life that you just heard, because I think it's relevant to the topic of leadership. Well, my leadership style anyway. My mum grew up in a poor household in the UK, so left school at 15 and went to work in London. At 17, she fell pregnant, and at 18, she got married. In her wedding photo, she was wearing a light coat over her wedding dress, because the back of the dress she had sewn didn't have a zip in it, because she hadn't quite mastered how to put one in yet. It wasn't a good start to married life. It was very much a time of you made your bed, so you lie in it. She had to move in with her in-laws and was often treated quite badly. My parents eventually migrated to Australia after being isolated for years up north with no friends, family and with three children and my dad, a heavy drinker and quite abusive, they moved to Perth and bought a house in Armadale. And that's where my memory kicks in. I remember the day we arrived. I was about four or five years old. I remember the house had lots of sand. There wasn't much grass or anything outside. There was a dense bushland across the road. The nearest shop was miles away with no connecting buses. There were a few large gum trees in the yard. Um, inside the flooring was bare concrete. And we had a gathering of um, second-hand furniture and there were no curtains at the time. My mum worked tirelessly to create a cosy home. She made curtains, bedspreads, plant pots, all from scraps that she could get for cheap. She also made all of mine and my sister's clothes. She cut our hair and she was just very resourceful all round. I felt the cosy house mum made abruptly change when my dad pulled in the driveway. I noticed how very careful we all were when dad was at home, how much colder it felt and how much less safe. I watched my mum desperately work towards something better for herself and for us. She learned to drive, she did her mature age leaving, she went to uni because it was free and so she could. She did all, all of this behind my dad's back. I watched her have a nervous breakdown, drop out of uni, get well and go back again. I remember coming home from my nan and granddad's one Sunday afternoon and I, I was absolutely stricken with a desperate feeling of panic because I knew dad was home. I couldn't find mum anywhere. Mum never went anywhere without that on a Sunday and she couldn't drive at that time. I really thought, it's an awful thought, but I really thought, you know, this she's dead because I've seen how he treats her, how he treats us. The odd thing is, I knew not to let on to my nan and granddad or my dad that I was looking for her. I was about nine at the time. I looked for her that I felt the need to make it look like I was doing something else. I found her eventually behind the shed. The point is, home wasn't a safe place for my mum, my sisters and me. But it wasn't a safe place at the Anderson's house either, a few houses up, 
We often saw Mr Anderson at the top of his driveway, drunk and abusing his wife, Mrs Anderson, who was a woman of great dignity, who persevered in her efforts to keep him away from the house. She eventually got a part-time secretarial job and got by with some donations from the Salvation Army. Her quiet strength and integrity was very inspiring to me. Across the road lived the Colebrooks, and I've changed their names by the way, um, three girls and a boy. The dad was in prison and the mum was often out all night. Debbie was the eldest at 16. She looked after them most of the time. I was only in mid-primary, but I helped. The house often had no food. The beds were not only unmade, but often had stale urine on them. When mum, when the mum did come home, she usually brought one, of, one or another of the men she knew. I stopped going around, actually, uh, when I knew the mum was there with a man because of the way the men looked at me and their awful sexual innuendo. It turns out that the Colbrook girls were sexually abused. I didn't know this at the time. They didn't tell me about it until we were older. I felt quite sexually harassed quite early on in my life. I, like a lot of other girls, would go the long way around to avoid this kind of harassment. Might get off the train and stop early if I was being sexually taunted by boys that I knew were getting off at the same spot as me. I watched advertisements where women were sexualized. I watched movies on TV where women were sexualized. I saw magazines where women were sexualized. I read reports in the paper of women being raped or murdered. And I wasn't the first or the last to be sexually assaulted by several older teenage boys when I was barely a teenager myself. Don't get me wrong though. Um, I, I had a lot of great times, and we all did, um, when we were growing up. And I had some wonderful friendships and relatives. Uh, I saw the great beauty of the world, the richness of those day-to-day -day joys and pleasures. I think what I'm really trying to pull out for you here is a strong thread, and that's the lack of safety for women and girls. I grew up feeling very unsafe, very unsafe in the world. And if you have enough of those experiences in your life, childhood sexual abuse, sexual assault, sexual harassment, domestic violence, it can take all you've got just to move through the world. And I knew, and I know, women and girls, that lacked other resources too, like middle household income, lack of access to a good education. And the Aboriginal girls I knew were also actively discriminated against. But by God, they were such sassy girls and resourceful and brave, and I learned or gained something from each of them. Importantly, I gained a sense of perspective. They do keep me real and keep me focused on working really hard to use the evidence, to use women's and girls' experiences to drive change, to prevent violence against women and girls, which has an awful impact on their physical, mental, sexual and reproductive health. And this is a major barrier to gender inequity. Oh, sorry, to gender equity. Um, and even though I'm positively terrified about losing the last bit of my fight, what has been great about it is I have met some incredible women with disabilities. But the downside is in meeting them, you learn of the terrible ex sexual exploitation in the world, and I still can't quite get my head around it. It hurts your soul to know what some human beings are capable of. So, I guess one thing that is a little bit leadershipy about me is that I want to shine a light on these things. I want to make people look and see what's happening in our communities. I want, to pe I want people to feel an ethical and social responsibility to act. 
for perpetrators of this violence to be accountable. But I don't do this alone. People influence me and I influence them. And that's why I love the notion of the women's movement. Many of us working together toward change and trying to get others to work with us too. And, to be really honest with you, I'm still not quite sure that that's leadership, but there you go. Thank you. Thank you for an inspiring presentation. It was great, wasn't it? it was great. Believe me, that's leadership. I wanted to ask you, I didn't have kids first in my 30s and I found that big enough challenge, my God. When you were 15, how did you begin to keep everything together and still get an education? I think that's just extraordinary. Mm -hmm. How did you do it? Well, um, I did make the decision um, not to do it full time when my daughter was little. Um, so even though I was very young, um, I don't know. I don't know why I kicked into action quickly, like even during my pregnancy. People used to like my sisters would laugh because I'd be eating raw carrots and all these healthy things because it just kicked in really quite quickly. That you know, feeling. And so, um, yeah, I did it part-time. Um, in some ways, though, you know, like when I was saying, you know, feeling unsafe in the world, um, it's, I don't know if it's, that was a good thing to feel um, or to put onto my daughter, but it, I would say it's actually really quite helpful as well because I had to be responsible for her. I had to be brave for her. And so, yeah, in that way, I, find it, I found it quite enabling. Yeah. You learn to dodge. Pardon? You learn to dodge things. <laughs> and from experience, you do learn to dodge all these things that's happening in your life. And you protect yourself and you hide. And you make sure you find out where the thing is and you go somewhere else to get it like you've got on the train. Yes. Yeah, I often, because uh, as you know, and I'm, uh, I also um, have worked a lot here in the domestic and family violence sector and it's always interesting when you hear discussions around safety planning um, because you know when I think of a lot of the children that I knew on my channel we were always safety planning you know? and you also realize you've got to get off that wheel that you were an honest child and as you're growing up that yes. wheel is not your wheel you'll know when your boundary is wrong so you decide you're going to change that wheel and very often people think you've got the silver spoon in your mouth they don't realize your history yeah, and it's and like I said, it's also um, others that really um, give you that strength too, and other people's love, and um, mm -hmm. and like I said, even literature is, can make you feel strong because you know other people are thinking the same thing as you. You might you learn to actually find your kindred spirits as well. I think and they give you give you strength. Yeah. So. Can you ask what to be your doctor's degree on? Oh, <laughs> this is the boring part. Um, I'm mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, fascinated with government and social policy and um, yeah so I had that sort of slant towards you know women and women's issues but, but yeah I, and 
I absolutely loved it. For the first year, you just had to read and read and read. So imagine me you know, being paid to read them. <laughs> um, yeah, so don't regret it. It's just been the foundation for the work I do today, really. I did feel that when I looked at my childhood that 
Um, because of my tenacity as a child, and because I mean, to look another foot, let's say my strength, optimally things, you know, um, I'm always strong. And the thing is that you learn by that to learn to protect yourself. You can actually feel and sense these people around you, and you know that you have to move on. But I feel that children must be taught at very early ages that if they were given those tools, that they've got to find people that will will inevitably believe them when they're being, you know, when things are not right for them, that that way we'll end up saving some of these children from what they suffer. I think that um. You know that that's the protective behaviours program has done. Yes, yes. Yeah, and I, I think that's in, invaluable. Um, uh, I unfortunately you know, had to do quite a bit of research last year because um, uh, based on some of the case studies that were coming through around clients, I thought I really wanted to understand better, you know, childhood sexual abuse and prevention in those areas, and it's really wonderful to have that. To have the protective behaviours, and I agree with you. I think it's it, it's very supportive of children in terms of them being able to identify and know that they're you know their own bodily privacy and things like that. But it's it's very disheartening when you see the evidence, and it's still very invisible in our communities. The the sexual abuse that goes on in families, and um, and I feel that it's a bit like you know domestic. Where we've got the focus on the perpetrator and perpetrator accountability and making the perpetrator more visible, I think we could get better at doing that. Um, the children as well. We've got a long way to go, unfortunately, but that's an important first step: is the protective behaviours. And what else was revealing in the evidence around that is that, um, uh, and uh, you know, I was focused on girls for this particular um, presentation that I was giving, and I just found it quite alarming that. Um, for girls that had other protectors in factors in place, if they were experiencing childhood sexual abuse, that's all that that is. If there were other protective factors in place, like they were going to a good school, had a good support, great grandparents or something, you know, there was other supports. Um, it showed that actually they were much, much less likely to be revictimized, revictimized. Um, but girls um, who had been uh, sexually abused but didn't have those protective factors, a high, high. Um, chance of actually being re-victimised in terms of sexual assault, but also in terms of um, domestic violence and intimate partner sexual violence. So I think we could do a lot more in the early intervention prevention space. Um, yeah, it's something that I don't know. There's other others in the room today as well. We feel quite passionately about that. Primary There's ways of teaching these youngsters. Yes. Yeah. How to protect themselves without being caught in fear. Yeah, and, and also knowing that it's not their fault, and in a normal way, it's sort of not to say it's normal as in it's okay, but it's it's not just you; it's happening to others, and I mean that's had an impact on women as well. If you think that when there was a time when it was all that's behind closed doors, and whereas now we've got a much more robust narrative around um, uh, what it means if um, you're experiencing domestic violence in your home, and that's been very enabling for women in terms of oh, identifying oh yeah, that's happening to me, but this is oh, this is what, this is, you know, this is domestic violence, this is what's happening in other households, and it can kind of depersonalise it a bit as a, as a first step. That's important, I think. And a lot of people really don't realise the psychological abuse that holds them back, as well as physical abuse, Yeah, and also, like I said, I think we can't um, underestimate um, a lack of economic security and housing as well. It's really hard to 
to get um, appropriate and suitable housing for women and children too. So we, I agree with you 100% and we've really made a lot of progress in that area in terms of you know, uh, economic abuse, psychological abuse. Um, uh, but um, you know, I don't think we can um, forget that how much we need to be focusing on you know, women's economic security as well. What an amazing story, and thank you so much for sharing all of the great work that you're doing in the field. Um, I think maybe one takeaway that um, I learned from my work working with people experiencing domestic violence, and maybe just one simple thing that we can all do today, is if you know someone in that situation, don't walk away from them. Even if they choose to stay, it's not their fault, because we need to make the perpetrators accountable, but if the perpetrators know that you're going to be there for that person, no matter what, going to make their lives so much harder. So don't walk away and just be that person that's there for them when they need you. Yeah. <laughs>
when I got here, so uh, to Australia, my husband, uh, our son was five years old. And how we got here, because you won the America's Cup. And uh, my cousin, uh, he said, why don't you, you know, you can move to Australia. They won the America's Cup, Fremantle. Well, my husband, so anyway, this, oh, let me take you back. We were sitting on a beach in Thailand with my cousins, and they said, you guys go way too much on holiday, and you're spending all your money. Why don't you move where it's warm? So it became the group uh, decision to try to find out where we were going to move. Fremantle was thrown out, and then South Africa and a few other places. We got home after the holiday. When I got home, my husband, he worked on cruise ships, so we just washed his clothes, sent him off to Singapore. He calls me three days later. He goes, honey, you're sitting down. I'm thinking, oh, they've got SARS. He's dying, you know, all these things in my head. Because this was when SARS were going on. He said, you're not going to believe this. My ship is being moved to Fremantle. So I got goosebumps and I said, well, we got to go. I mean, how big of a chance? We'd never heard of Fremantle. <laughs> and within this group of two weeks or three weeks, this all happened. So we packed our things and, and came here. I thought, you know, Western Australia, Australia, Sweden, you know, same thing. We, you know, we speak English. We learn to speak English in school. Uh, but it wasn't, it is very different. And it goes back to the gender equality. So my grandma, who got married in to the family, the Hansons, which my great-granddad had built all these factories uh, where they produced bread and cakes and all that. But his son, my granddad, he was not very business savvy at all, but my grandma was. And my great-granddad handed her the business. So I just feel like I had both men and women in my past that have seen the opportunity, like this person is best skilled for this and this person is best skilled for this. So, and my mom, she, uh, she finished school year eight, but then when she left my dad, and they're still really good friends, but she, she bought her first hotel and you know, made her career later. So I just believe that anybody can do anything if they really want to. So that's the shoulders that I stand on. But when you move, and anyone in here who knows about family domestic violence, one of the things that perpetrators do is isolate, um, you know, take away the friends, the family, and all that. Uh, being born and raised in Sweden, you have not only your family, but you also have another system that is, you know, supported. And even if you haven't used it, you grow up knowing that it's there. So I always say that's why I felt that we could go anywhere in the world because, you know, you always go home. But when, you, when I got here, I didn't realise how important it is with friends and family. Even if, you know, you're adventurous, it's really important with friends and families. So I started to look around and see what are Australians doing and you volunteer. You're like really amazing volunteering. And that's not something that I grew up doing. It's not something that we normally do. We don't really know about our homelessness and family violence. So I said to a friend of mine, I said, you know, we need to start doing, she's also Swedish, I said, we need to do what people do in Western Australia. And she goes, oh, let's raise some funds for, you know, sick kids. I said, this is in 2008, and I'm a tax accountant, by the way. I said to her, now, I want to I do something that nobody wants to put their face to. And I said, I want to raise money for fat, you know, to break the cycle of family violence. And she's like, okay, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, let's have an ABBA party. So that was the first step. <laughs> anyway, so I spent a whole day ringing, just first trying to find the refuges, 
impossible in 2008. I couldn't find them. Then finally, I got a few phone calls, but I didn't know anything about family violence. So I didn't know that women would go out and look for other women to bring them back you know, to the abuse. So here I am being and all of you who work in this space, you know people like me, we come in and we think we can save the world, we have no idea what we're doing. So I come and say, hey, we just reach me, we want to do another party, we don't want your help. And I'm like, what? I just want to give you some money, I'm thinking. And I thought, this is really strange. Anyway, at the end of the day, I got hold of Major Margaret at Salvation Army. And she said, come on in, ladies, come in and have a cup of tea. I was like, Yay, finally, finally, we've got somebody wants to meet us. And we walked in, and that was the beginning of my journey. Because listening to Major Margaret, she said, Becky, before you can help, you need to understand. So since that day, I asked questions. What do you want and what do you need? People who work in this space and the women and kids. Because it's not about me, it's about their needs. And sometimes uh, people think they need something, I think something else, but it's not my life. So one thing that I really learned was to make sure that women like me who comes in that bulldozers, that we don't become perpetrators and you know take over people's lives. And that includes people who work in this space. Because I'm an accountant, you know, we'll deal with, with people with money, you know, we need to listen. So for me, the journey with Salvation Army has been really good because we've had this communication on what do you need and what do you want. But one of the things that I found at the refuge, I felt that it was them and us, like it was inside here and then there's a scary world out there. I'm thinking, if I would come in here, I would be afraid almost, you know, to go out there. So I said, how can we get the outside to come in, but in a safe way. So that's where I uh, became, so 2008, I said to Major Margaret, how many millions do you need? Because I was so convinced that day when I sat with her that I said, I don't have it, but I'll find it. Everybody knows in 2008, the recession hit. So nobody would give money to anybody who they even knew, let alone a Swedish woman, you know, twirling in saying, hey, give me some money, I'm going to give a salvation money. No, it didn't happen. So I went back to Major Margaret and said, what do you need? Like, what can, can I get you to Tell me. So we started to get actually people to come in and volunteer and do pro bono services. So since, uh, yeah, anyway, that became the model. Then I'm realising if we just need a little bit of money, but all these people that are coming in and doing the, the lawyering and the accounting, they are learning about family violence. They are learning empathy. They are learning so much. So then I started to think, and I said, what about if we can get the 50-year law students and 50-year accounting students, the 50-year, uh, um, uh, all, all of the students that they needed on the 50-year level? Because I said, if we can get all the white tower high flyers, we can't get down here, but they can mentor these students. To get them to understand that we need to know what goes on in our community. So everybody thought, oh, this is a really good idea. I said, well, hang on a minute. We need to ask the women, is this what you want? Do you want 50 students? And people go, oh, you better be really good. And I said, oh, 
hang on, let's, let's bring the women in. So I said, how would you feel to have 50 law students or, you know, coming helping you? And they go, yeah, 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 no worries. I said, yeah, but do you know that what you are doing, your story, the problems that you've had and to get to where you are now, you are helping, educating tomorrow's lawyers, could be tomorrow's politicians, could be tomorrow's whatever, but you are actually part of the solution. And when you turn it around like that, it went, oh, really? I go, hell yeah. I said, seriously, I have no idea what you have gone through, but because you shared your stories, I have learned so much that I can bring in other spaces. And by using these fifth-year students, you're giving them an opportunity to build a better tomorrow. So I guess from my perspective of leadership, it's not about me. It's about the people around us, the people we share the journey with that I think is really, really important. And I met some of the most amazing women in there. One of the women, she said to me, Becky, you are so gullible, seriously. You need to, they're going to eat you up alive in there and they're going to take all your money and I looked at her. I don't have any money, you know, I've got my company, but, you know. She said, no, you need to think. She goes, I'm an ex-junkie. If I fall in again, I will. And she read all these things she was going to do to me, or, you know, potentially could do to me. And she said, Becky, I need you to understand we come from different worlds. And this is what I, could, I potentially could do. I've done it to my family. I have never felt more loved and cared for by a friend and I did this young woman. She was so concerned about my well-being. I was there for her. So this is when you're a team, when you actually care about someone else. I mean, there she was with her kids on the brink of, you know, had nothing, and she was worried about me. But, you know, so if we can just listen and care, it's amazing um, what we can create. I got invited to Rotary 2011. As I said, I had my own accounting practice, so I got invited. I have no idea what Rotary is. Anybody know what Rotary is? You all do? Okay. Well, average age, about 75, white men. Uh, so, and there was a few women in there. And, but I had no idea what they were doing. So I went in there, you know, thought, yeah, yeah, I gotta go. Of course I'll come. But I looked at what they were doing, the amazing projects that this club was doing and how much money they had raised. And I'm thinking, why am I peddling out here? Because my friend, she went on to have more babies, so it was me left helping Salvador, the major market. I thought, can we set up a project here between Rotary and Salvation Army? And now, picture this. Swedish woman, stilettos, going in to white men telling them that we're going to do a family domestic violence project. So I thought, no, they will understand, and they did. So again, if we actually, I expected them to say yes, because that's what they did in so many other projects. And I thank them every Friday when I'm there for lunch, because if those boys, those men and those women didn't back me, we couldn't have done what we've done. So it's amazing when you ask people to come on board. And I said to them, I have so much to learn about the Australian culture. I've got so much to learn about women and men and all those. But when we begin this journey, all of us, we need to take responsibility that now we do know, so we can't say, I don't know what family violence is. So that's part of our 
culture and our club. And so respect is a big thing. So the amazing change you can make when you invite men along. So I travel around the world. I've gotten the opportunity to travel. And you would all know it's hard to keep having domestic violence on the agenda at times because politicians, you know, there is something new up there. Uh, trafficking is something they work a lot with the US. But I went to the White House and kept knocking on their door because I just wanted them to not forget that family violence is the biggest crime against humanity of our time. And we need to remember that lots of stems from there. So when a child can feel safe in their home, because maybe they're bullied at schools or so, you know, other things happen, but they can go home and be safe, I think we can build a better world. So that became my passion, and I think a lot of people wait. They make more money so they can donate. I say to people, don't wait until you get rich, don't wait until you get old. Start volunteering, and the amazing people that you will meet along the journey is just so enriching. So you give to give, but the things that I have gotten back, I can't even begin to share with you. Uh, it wasn't what I set out to do, but when you give to give, you, you meet amazing people. So thank you, Tara, so much for inviting me here today and uh, giving me this opportunity. But let me share, we were talking before about what, what happens in our lives, what are the pivotal moments and I thought of Jess when she told her story. I know Jess, and I, was, you know, I didn't know that this was part of Jess' story. And a lot of people have a lot of assumptions. And I don't know if you, you see me here. Blonde, stilettos, white. There is, you know, so sometimes when I walk into the refuge, I think, well, I'll tell you the story. So I forget that I look like this. I forget because this is what I look like. But when I walk in somewhere, I have a purpose and I have, a, and I have to remind myself that other people see me differently. And when I walked into the refuge, I had another volunteer with me, and she said, "Hey Becky, how rude! How rude of you to have your stilettos and, and you know be all dressed up to walk in here." And I hadn't even thought the thought. Why would that be rude? So I thought, oh, I better check. So I went to the women and, and to the staff, and I said. Have I been rude all these years? Like, I've just come, you know, from St. Joe's Terrace where I work and, and, you know, dropped in what the things that I needed to do. And they go, no, that's you, Becky. And I said, yeah, but, like, should I wear, you know, casual clothes? They go, no, not at all. You are you. And I said, yeah, but how do the new women think when I walk in? Well, well. So then I found out, and I hadn't known this, but the other women had to tell, oh, no, no, that's Vicky. She's one who's on the playground with this, that. Oh, right. So, yes, they were managing my looks for people to bridge that gap because there became a big gap otherwise. There would have been a big gap between me and the new women coming in. So I, I learned to understand, oh, all right. But then I thought, hmm, I want the women and kids to feel comfortable when I see people like me, I want them to be able to go up and, and think maybe they're just like Becky. You know when you think a thing and then it happens? Two weeks later, one of the women who had left the refuge, she called me and she said, you're not going to believe this. I was walking in this mall with my son and my friend. And one of the things I've said to the women before, I said, make sure you think about who you hang about with because if they are very negative and rude to other people and speak badly of them, you know, does that make you feel good? So think about your surroundings. Anyway, she said, I was walking with my friend 
And she pointed at a woman and said, oh, look at that, the, the, all kinds of things. And she said, my son, she had a five-year-old son, he pulled his mom's hand and said, that could have been Becky. And she said, that was the revelation to her. She goes, I could hold my son back by letting him think, just because someone is dressed differently, up or down or sideways, that they will have a certain behaviour. So for me, again, I want to celebrate women and I want us to be who we are. And if we want to have sedatives, we're sedatives. If we want to have runners, we have runners. But I think it's important that we all, you know, break those myths and allow people to be who they are. So uh, I, I open up the if there's anything. I haven't said anything that I wrote in my speech, by the way. <laughs> so, um, but... Through my life, through my life, I just want to say, have been pivotal moment on my grandma and my mom and my dad and lots of people, but they have um, made sure that I make good choices and that I understand just because I'm charming and I can, you know, I want to get there, making sure that I don't coerce people, but I bring them on the journey, that, it, that I make sure to consider their feelings and their wishes and wants. Um, so that's what I'm becoming very passionate about as well. If we're going to prevent, we all need to understand our own strengths and vulnerabilities. I'm very pushy, so, you know, like, I can't hide. I, I, um, it, it is one of those. But I'm trying to use my name to something positive. So, again, um, use what you have. You know, when I got married, I choose to uh, have my surname because it sticks out. It's who I am. So whatever we got, use it. Yeah? The powerful vote is your first thing. Okay, I should be, I should share. So we set up 2013, I became a Rotarian, so 2013 I um, negotiated, I like to think, that I did, uh, to get a law firm to set up the foundation under the Perth Rotary umbrella. So, because what we found, if people just put money straight into um, uh, Salvation Army, I couldn't get that exactly where I needed to go because you just don't know. So me and Major Margaret, we really wanted to make sure that the money went to family domestic violence and to women and children. I acknowledge that men also experience family violence, but we are focused on women and children. So that's what the foundation set up. So we've done nine and a half million since 2013, but that is uh, seven and a half million in volunteering and in kind. So, and then a million dollars in cash and a million dollars um, yeah, so that in kind, million dollars in cash, million dollars in kind, and seven half in pro bono and volunteering. So the thing is, when people volunteer, you actually connect with your heart, and you bring that back into your office and your home, and that's really where it, it makes a big difference. So we've renovated um, the learning centre, we've done a new playground, uh, created an outreach centre. I was speaking to a lady who who are working in the community uh, as an outreach worker. And um, that's what we really wanted to get funding to, to Salvation Army 
uh, so they could have outreach workers. So now I've got a big vision. Uh, well, we have a big vision. So this amazing thing that have happened is happening in Western Australia because of all of you. So it's a West Australian spirit um, that have created Rotary Salvation Army. Now Rotary International exists in 179 countries. They've got 1.2 million members and they are the local leaders and business people. So I thought, where there is Rotary, where there is Salvos, why couldn't there be a little puff of hope? So we've spread this and working toward, and that would create a billion dollars annually in Australia just by being in one third of the Rotary clubs on the, on the little model we have over here. But it would be 45 billion dollars annually if we could get it into all the Rotary clubs across the world. But um, as I'm saying, you know, uh, I'm not doing this alone. This is because people are Rotarians and volunteers, and they go. I would love to do this, how can I help with this? So young people like you know, like Tara, we have university students who are setting up now programs using using their lectures to create real curriculums and train the trainers so high school students can train each other on what is a healthy relationship. So not just focusing on what is unhealthy, but actually how do I steer back to healthy? Um, you know, where are my boundaries and what we found is that that is really good for young people as well as old people for us to communicate and realise that we have different boundaries. So what for me is an argument because, you know, I see that, you know, that's what we've done, we mum, just talked everything but very loud. And we never, I never felt that we were arguing, we were discussing, whereas other people, when you raise your voice like that, it is very intimidating. And so it's understanding other people, how, how you receive. So the thing for me was be able coming to Western Australia and learning how to volunteer. So it's made me a much better person. So thanks all of you for that. And you go live. What a wonderful group of speakers we've had today. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Amazing story. Thank you for joining me for The Hidden World of Women, a podcast brought to you by Women's Health and Wellbeing Services. It has been my absolute pleasure to spend today surrounded by inspiring, incredible, amazing women and be able to share their stories with you here on this podcast platform. I look forward to joining you in two weeks when we celebrate International Women's Day Part 2 and bring you the additional two incredibly inspiring speakers that we had at today's Inspire Conference to celebrate International Women's Day 2021 where we choose to challenge. The Hidden World of Women, the podcast brought to you by Women's Health and Wellbeing Services. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube by looking up Women's Health and Wellbeing Services. You can also find us at our website www.whws.org.au. Bye.